And so we're excited for that. We're glad you're here today. Um, With that said, would you bow your heads with me once more? Uh, Heavenly Father, it's a wonderful thing to be people who have uh, a God as good as our God, who is as near to us as you are uh, through Jesus Christ. We pray today that the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear and applies these words to our hearts, both by bringing about conviction, conversion, repentance, but also praise and life change. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So a perfect date night for my wife and I, and maybe this means you won't invite us over for dinner, is to sit down and listen to a true crime podcast or watch a true crime documentary. Uh, And stories like this reveal several implications, I think, of the image of God that are innate to us as humans, because they often revolve around two realities. The first is the sanctity of life, and the second is an innate desire for justice. And our passage that Kevin just read for us today in Luke is a true crime episode. It's a real moment in history in which real people called out with real demands for what they thought was real justice. The British pastor and theologian John Stott once asked the question, why did Jesus die? To which he quipped, he didn't. He was killed. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was an intentional act, but an act of who? Pilate? The priests? The people? Who killed Jesus? And as you watch or read true crime, you might desire to know, but very rarely does your investigation into the answer of who killed who affect your life in any sort of meaningful way. It scratches our itch of curiosity. Maybe it just brings resolve to a storyline. And yet, your life is already shaped and will continue to be shaped by what you believe about the question, who killed Jesus? In fact, there's no more formative thought you have in your mind than the answer you have to that question, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And you'll notice that our passage today includes two clear statements of guilt, and yet it is not Jesus who is declared guilty. In fact, three times Jesus is declared innocent in this text, and yet he is condemned. And so it's therefore not the condemnation of the creator Christ that we read of in this passage, but instead it's the wholesale condemnation of God's creation, of us who condemned him to death. If you're new here to Sovereign Hope, you probably didn't expect to be called a murderer right out of the gate. Uh, And yet, I promise, there is good news for us in this dark reality. And this is our big picture today. What is the gospel? Maybe you've wondered that. We often say the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. That is very helpful. In our text today, we could actually look at the gospel in three similar perspectives. The gospel is the story of Jesus' perfection, our perversion, and God's provision. And in that, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the innocence of Jesus, the irrationality of sin, and finally, the inevitability of a better will. Jesus' innocence, our irrational sin, and God's inevitable will. And so if you've been with us, um, last week you heard under great painful duress, maybe you tried to forget much of what you heard last week, um, we heard uh, three trials in a sense of Jesus, and today we read of a fourth. And it's actually the decision of this court which ultimately puts Jesus 
on the cross. However, as powerful as this court's decision was, it's not a real court at all. Last week, we read the two official courts. That was before the Sanhedrin of the Jews and before Pilate, which was the Roman court. This court, then, is the court of public opinion. If the Scopes monkey trial was billed as the trial of the century in 1925, then despite the informal nature of this court that we read of today, this is the trial of all eternity. In fact, we find prophetic warrant in this trial going all the way back to Psalm chapter 2 where David said, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, which is the word Christ. And so Luke identifies almost these very parties present in our text today, if you notice in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Some of you, I'm sure, remember gathering around the TV or the radio to hear the OJ verdict in the 90s. Many more of you perhaps better remember LeBron's uh, famous televised decision in 2010 where nearly 13 million people tuned in to see where LeBron James was going to choose to go play basketball. And having concluded his investigation, this moment is just as culturally charged and interesting to these people as those were in our own culture. He had done the work, and now he was going to present, in the same way the Supreme Court would today, he was going to present his opinion. It was can't miss TV. People were hanging on the edge of their first century stone seats. And his opening statement here reflects the legality of this situation. You'll notice that he presents the charges, the mode of his investigation, his conclusion, and his final judgment. Read with me in verse 14 and 17. You, this is Pilate saying to the Jewish officials, you brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So in light of all of the anxious anticipation of this decision, this was, went over just about as well as if LeBron James went on TV and said he's taking his talents to H&R Block. This was a massive letdown for everyone involved. It's not what they wanted to hear. And this is our first point today. This is the innocence of Jesus. Pilate's conclusion was, this man has done nothing wrong. This isn't the first time he said this. In fact, if you look back at the trial we saw beginning last week, Pilate says in verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, this is before he sent him to Herod, I find no guilt in this man. Later on in our passage today, in verse 22, Luke tells us this, and a third time Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And this threefold vindication of Jesus by the Roman court is meant to communicate not only the actual history behind it, but the holistic conclusion and weight of it. This communicated absolute guiltlessness. And this is important for us because Pilate had one job. And that one job was to make sure that uprisings like the one Jesus is being accused of do not happen. 
As we see with Barabbas, who we meet later on in this text, such political temper tantrums were actually really common in this area, which is why the seat Pilate had in the Roman government, with Pilate being the governor there, was a really sought-after seat. It was kind of like New York. Like, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you can keep peace in Jerusalem, then you will prove yourself worthy of any position in all of the Roman Empire. There was immense political and personal weight tied up in Pilate's aspirations to govern this well and make sure there was no political uprisings. And Pilate examined Jesus thoroughly, not because he was theologically interested, but because he was personally interested. His job was on the line. He also makes it clear that Herod's lower court also cleared Jesus and said he was innocent. Remember, one of the claims Jesus is being uh, crucified for is the claim to be king of the Jews. Herod was king of the Jews. And so if anybody had an interest of discerning the truth of a rival claimant to the throne, it would have been Herod. If anyone had any warrant to at least say, ah, it seems credible enough, this guy's guilty, it would have been Herod. And yet Herod also cleared him. Why is this important for us to understand? Because these two men who would have had much to gain in seeking the truth, in getting to the bottom of this uh, court proceeding, they sought truth thoroughly. They communicated it. And notice Pilate in verse 22 not only makes it clear that Jesus doesn't deserve to die, he says that he, in him he has found no evil. It's not just that he's innocent in this one matter. He's saying he's entirely free of evil all over. This is because Jesus is God. The eternal son of God who took on flesh, was born fully God and fully human. And yet even in the incarnation, the perfect, holy, spotless nature of the son of God was unaffected. The author of Hebrews tells us that he was in every way like us and yet without sin. Perhaps you've heard someone described, probably me, as having impeccable taste. Uh, And that means that that person's character is of such that they are incapable of choosing anything of lower quality or worth. So it's to say that person is unable to choose something that is not of value or of poor value. Theologians often talk about the impeccability of Jesus as a theological category. Jesus was unable to sin. He would never choose something of lower value because he had impeccable taste. He knew the joy of communing with the triune God in perfect obedience. And as fallen humans, we can't wrap our minds around what it would be like to be both human, as Jesus was, and yet without sin as Jesus was. Our only experience in humanity is tainted with our own sinfulness. We're never not aware of our sin because we're born into it. But Jesus being born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit was distinct from us in this one way. And you might think yourself to be the sweetest person in the whole world. But if the world got access to the hard drive of your heart, would you still be seen as innocent? guiltless, free of evil. You see, it's often the people who think that they themselves are so free of sin that actually have grown to appreciate purity. But under that same standard, can't you appreciate that you are not fully pure? 
And that if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, he was pure, innocent, holy, without evil or guilt. And the more Jesus was examined, the more beautiful he became, even from the lips of pagan rulers who declared him guiltless. The theologian A.W. Pink once compared the trials of Jesus to the crushing of a rose. The more he was pressed, the more fragrant he became. When you're pressed, do you smell sweetly or do you often stink? When we are called to give defense of our own actions, when people find out things we don't want them to know, what comes out of us? And compare that to what has come out of Jesus and realize that you are not him. He is par excellence in his sinlessness. And the more he was pressed, the more lovely he became, the more purity was on display. In fact, the, more he, the closer he got to the cross, the more outlandish the cross seemed to put such a holy one to that end. But it's also important to note here that when Pilate declared Jesus perfect, and innocent, he was also declaring the crowds as imperfect and guilty. The ESV translates here in our passage, uh, Pilate's judgment as not guilty. That's a fair translation, but actually the object of that word um, expressed in some other translations is not Jesus. The object of that word are, are the accusers. And so it's translated in other translations as no grounds or no basis. In other words, we're to understand the verdict, not primarily in relationship to Jesus, but primarily in relationship to the charges and those who brought them against Jesus. And so it's the charges of the crowd that have failed. The Pilate is saying, he is saying, you, you prosecutors, you Jewish people, you are groundless. Your charges are without base. In America, there's a legal charge called malicious prosecution. It's bringing knowingly false claims to the court in attempt to be malicious, to be evil, to be bad, to be conceited against the person who is the defendant. And Pilate's decision here, in practice, turned the entire court case around. It's, he's exposing the evil intent of their charges. You, he says, you have brought baseless charges against an innocent man. You are liable for damages. You are the ones misleading the court and the nation. None of us, we talked about this last week, none of us will ever stand trial before Pilate's court. But all of us will stand trial one day in divine court. We will stand before God Almighty and in that court, what you think of Jesus and the claims you made about him, that is to say, what you have believed about him and how you have treated him will be called to account it will be examined, not by a jury of your peers, but by the divine creator who knows the extent and fullness of your heart in total. And in that moment, when we stand trial, apart from divine grace, it will be said about your accusations of Jesus that you are without grounds, that your heart is baseless, that you, are deceived. You see, you might accuse Jesus of many things, and we all do every day. All of our beliefs are downstream, or our, uh, all of our behaviors are downstream of our beliefs. You might justify 
what you believe or you don't believe based off these internal charges we have about Jesus. And our modern world and our own functional atheism in our heart has no lack of these claims. Well, you could maybe charge Jesus of just being not true. I've examined him. He's the liar. That's a load of baloney. You might examine Jesus and say, well, some of it's true, but not all of it. It's outdated mostly, but I like the lovey bits. I like the bits where we get to, you know, be in each other's homes and break bread and maybe somebody might come back to life. That seems cool. Maybe you examine him and you say, he seems harsh and vindictive. Maybe the cross is divine child abuse. Who could love a God like that? Maybe you refuse to believe him because you read his words or you examine him and you conclude him to be bigoted, anti-women, homophobic, authoritarian, or abusive. But to accuse the very son of God of these things is to file a losing claim. They will not stand up. The fault is not with him. The fault is with us. He is without blemish, and just like in Pilate's court, it is us who will be seen as unjust, imperfect, and baseless. We are the insurrectionists. We are those who pervert justice. True justice does not find its origin in Greek thought or modern democracy. It finds its origin in the perfectly just God who made us. It's wrapped into the taste buds of our hearts because of the image of God. Innocent till proven guilty is not a worldly concept. It is a divine one. And in fact, these very religious lawyers who are bringing this court case to Pilate would have had memorized studies and written dissertations on Exodus 32.2, where God says this, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. But siding with the many is the subtitle of this whole text. Perverting justice is the lead. And that's exactly what these men do. As they deny the claims of the court and demand their own petulant rage to be carried out against Jesus. And despite Pilate's protestations, this is what he ends up doing as well. We live in a justice-hungry world, and if you care about justice, if you're tweeting about justice, if you're reading about justice, if you're zealous for justice, then this text is of utmost importance to you. Because here, if this is true, which is the query of every cry for justice, is this true? If this is true, then there is no greater perversion or miscarriage of justice than what these parties are about to choose to do to the only sinless, spotless human, Jesus Christ. And this is what leads us to our second point this morning, the irrationality of sin. Jesus is innocent in every way. We are irrational in our own sin. By the end of this passage, the injustice is going to be abundantly clear, but we also see the irresistible foolishness of our own sinful affections and unredeemed hearts. So pay attention here to what it seems people want, because it seems that what Pilate wants is different and distinct from what the Jewish people want. But by the end, we see they all want the same thing. What does Pilate want? Luke gives us a unique uh, insight into Pilate's heart, beginning in verse 18. But they all cried together. This is after his first public statement here. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison 
for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It's impressive how Luke paints Pilate in this passage. Pilate is seen as the one trying to stop the whole thing. In essence, he's seen as the good guy. And notice why he's trying to stop Jesus here in the text. It says, because of the desire of his own heart. He desired to release Jesus. Pilate is genuinely interested, not just in the case, but in the person of the case. So much so that if you were to take all four Gospels uh, and synthesize them together, what we see is that there are five ways in which Pilate tried to get what he desired. He tried to distance himself from this court case and to release Jesus. First, we see he declares Jesus innocent. Therefore, he should be free. Second, he sends him to Herod. He says, well, okay, it's easier if Herod can just make the decision and then it's not on me. I don't have to condemn Jesus. I don't have to deal with this. So he sends him to Herod. Third, and we see this here in the text, he offers like a compromise. He says, Jesus is innocent. You're upset. I'll just give Jesus some, some floggings and then I'll let him go. Let's just see how committed to justice he is. Here, I'll just beat the innocent man a little bit and it'll satisfy you and then we'll send him out. Fourth, he offers, we see here, a prisoner exchange. And finally, in Matthew, when he gives up Pilate, or gives up Jesus to be crucified, he washes his hands of this issue, as if to indicate to everybody that this is out of my hands, this is out of my desire, there's no guilt or shame on me for this. And in light of all this, it's easy to look at the events surrounding Pilate and to feel sorry for him. He was wanting a good thing. Just difficult circumstances. He didn't want Jesus to die. But let's bear in mind what we know about Pilate up until this point. First, Pilate was the only one who had the power to condemn Jesus to die. Only Rome had the ability to do that right now. Second, he had, with that power, the whole authority of Rome behind him. The most powerful nation on earth was beheld to Pilate's word in this matter. He had no fear because of what he represented. Third, he already showed an eagerness to flex his might through violent acts. We already saw in chapter 13 that he put down an insurrection in Galilee with great blood. Putting out people violently is kind of what Pilate lives for. And fourthly, we see this because the historical witness, even outside scripture, says that this was all in line with Pilate's character. He had a penchant for making and doing hard things, often with great brutality. One contemporary called him a man of very inflexible disposition and very merciless as well as very obstinate. Why is it important to understand this about Pilate? Because it goes to show that if Pilate desired to release Jesus, Pilate could have released Jesus. There was nothing in this external world that would have stopped him from doing what he wanted most. Which means that it is not the externals that were the problem in Pilate's life. It was his internal desires. It was that despite his expressed desire to release Jesus, at the end of the day, he was more concerned about the desire for himself. He did what he wanted even though it seemed to be against what he wanted. My wife, she doesn't know I'm going to use this. 
she here still high? Uh, she has this battle when we go eat at our famous burrito spot. Uh, it's got uh, garlic cream cheese on her favorite burrito. And if she's going to go to a meeting or something, she's like, I don't want my breath to stink. And I'm like, well, don't make me suffer for your stinky breath. Just get a different burrito. She's like, I can't get a different burrito. <laughs> this is the burrito I get. She's beheld to her wants, even though she's free to choose anything she wants. She's captive to it. This is what Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, writing at different points in church history, have called the bondage of the will and the freedom of the will. You're bound to do what your will is, but your will is dumb. You're free to do what your will is, but your will is dumb. We can't do what we want because we do what we want. And our wants are always broken. See, Pilate here desired to release Jesus, but he also desired, as of greater importance, the path of least resistance. Though he wanted it, he didn't want it enough. And we too often find those instances where we want to follow Jesus. We are interested in Jesus. But what happens when the things that we want about Jesus or of Jesus conflict with the things we want for ourselves? Whose wants are king? You see, something or someone is always sovereign in your life, whether you claim to be religious or not, whether you claim to be Christian or Buddhist, you are beheld to something. And unless that thing is the sovereign king of the world, we are beheld to something that enslaves us and makes us irrational. You see, he wanted and he desired self-preservation. And he did what he wanted to do. He just had better window dressing. He just looks better. Because the crowd, on the other hand, their expressed desire is not good. And it just gets worse. They become more and more angry, more and more bloodthirsty through this whole process. And this goes back to what we saw with Peter a few weeks ago, that sin, if left unchecked, always escalates. We never sit out enough. We never give sin a timeout and it comes back less angry or less powerful. And Luke only gives a little bit of time here to the release of Barabbas, but what time he does spend, he stresses the irony and the contradiction of it all. It was customary at this time as kind of like an olive branch to the Jewish people for Rome to release a prisoner. And so Pilate here, um, the other gospels tell us that he, he's recommending Barabbas as an exchange for Jesus. Why Barabbas? Well, it's probably because Pilate knows that's the worst they've got that if he's going to get Jesus released, he's going to choose someone who is not good. If these Jews are so concerned about the health of their nation, then if I present Barabbas, then certainly they'll just be content to let Jesus live. And Luke tells us here that Barabbas was a convicted insurrectionist and murderer. Matthew tells us he was notorious in his reputation. Mark tells us that he was also a rebel and a robber, this guy is not winning any citizenship awards. And now the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas are incredible. It starts with the fact that Jesus claims to be the son of God and Barabbas's name means son of the father. Jesus was declared innocent by a court. Barabbas has already been condemned by a court. Jesus had done no evil. Barabbas was notoriously evil. Jesus told the Jews to pay their taxes to Rome. Barabbas was a rebel to Rome. Further, Jesus spent his ministry among the people, healing the sick and raising the dead. Barabbas spent his time robbing the vulnerable and making people dead. And finally, Jesus was accused of insurrection. Barabbas led a bloody insurrection. And here's the irony. 
of the, their two options. For the Jews to choose Barabbas was to choose the one most likely to do them harm. For Pilate to release Barabbas was to release the one most likely to get him fired. Any adult looks at this and we don't choose either. We say, let's find a different way. Let us not release the thing that's gonna get me shanked at night and fired. But what do they do? They're beheld. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted and he released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. They wanted what was dangerous and delusional, and they took it. I couldn't help but thinking <clears throat> of the Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade, the old guy is in the room with the chalices, and one guy picks up what he thinks is the, um, the Holy Grail and drinks it, and the old guy just says, you have chosen poorly. <laughs> in the book of Jeremiah, God is calling out to sinners to return to him. And listen to how he paints this in Jeremiah 6, 16 through 17. Come and find the ancient path. He's calling them to turn back. That's what repentance is. Turn back. But what is, it, what are we, what is he calling us to? Find the good way. Find rest for your souls. Who would neglect that offer? But they said, we will not walk in it. He then says, be warned. Pay attention to the warning trumpet. And they say, we will not pay attention. You have chosen poorly. We have chosen poorly. Our hearts are free to choose at any point in time a multitude of options as long, but as long as we are in sin, we will always choose poorly. Sin always chooses what's dangerous because sin is what we need to be saved from. When Jesus was prophetically declared in Matthew chapter one, it says, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, when you view sin, do you really understand that you need to be saved from? Do you really see that every promise it gives is actually the certainty of death and harm and pain? Do you see your life as this puzzle that you have to put together to try and find joy despite not being able to sin? And here we see why we need help because we are beheld to what is dangerous. And this is the full purpose of Jesus' trials here. Sin always causes us death experientially, and ultimately. You see, one day it will cause us death because we are guilty of the greatest sin of putting Christ on the cross. And this is the full purpose of Jesus's trials. These many trials show he wasn't just condemned by the religious or by the Romans, but also by the rest of us. Jews, judges, and average Joes, all of them are guilty. All of them demanded the death of God. Your sin, my sin, Mima's sin, all of our sin at its core wants Jesus dead. 
Kids in here, kindergartners, you're in here. Your sin, when it's against your brother or your sister or your teacher or your parents, despite how mad that makes you, what your heart really wants, what it really is, is mad at God. It wishes that you were God. And that's why we need to be careful. Parents, guess what? That message was for you. (laughs) All of our sin is only satisfied when it finally kills Jesus. The Puritan pastor Stephen Charnock says it this way. He says, every sin is an aim at the destruction of the being of God. Though not known, and so that's to say it's not, we're not thinking this way, though not the own intention of every sinner, but it is the nature of every sin. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. And could a sinner attain his end, God would be destroyed. As soon as I had kids, I realized something very quickly. And that was despite how lovely and cute kids are and despite the fact that you've been tasked to not let them die, the only thing they want is to kill themselves. Lick the outlet. Greatest joy we'll ever have. Swallow the battery. Who would keep me from such privilege in life? Sinners always want what satisfies them. And that's the problem. To our unredeemed hearts, what satisfies sinners at our core is the one thing, the death of God. We often try in half-hearted ways to reach this end. And that's why none of us are finally satisfied in our sin. That's why we keep going back to the well. Because it's never enough. At the end of the day, there's still another on the throne. There's still feelings of being feeling judged in your own heart. There's still a lack of enjoyment in that thing. There's still something more ultimate. If you want satisfaction and peace, finally and fully as a sinner, you must finish Adam's rebellion. You must kill God. That is the want of all of our souls. And that is the beginning point of the gospel. For Paul says, while we were enemies of God. The gospel exists because of our broken wants. But the gospel is good news because of God's want. Notice how Luke draws this conclusion of the desires and wills together. Listen to just, it's kind of clunky how he talks about it. And look at what he's drawing our eyes to. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their wills. Or as it says earlier, their voices prevailed. Nietzsche did not declare God dead. Modernism did not declare God dead. Sinners, all sinners declared God dead. The triumph of human will is not a cure for cancer or affordable health care. The triumph of our will, our eternal babble, is the condemnation of our own perfect creator. We stand condemned. You stand condemned. 
But the beauty of this passage is that despite the will of broken sinners, there is a better will at play. And this is our final point this morning, the inevitability of a better will. We want God dead, and the wages of our wants, Paul tells us, is death, because we got it. Jesus went to the cross to the hands of sinful men. But the cross was not only what we wanted, it was, in a sense, against our wants, what we needed. That is, to put it another way, the cross was what God wanted. It was the will of the Lord, Isaiah 53, to crush him. Jesus himself already said this in chapter 22. He says, for the son of man, speaking of himself, goes as it has been determined. Speaking of the cross. Peter, standing before this very group of Jews, a few weeks after Jesus is killed, describes it this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Men killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. But it was God's will, triune will, Jesus's will to die so that those who wanted him dead might see that we need him dead. Jesus died for sinners to condemn them. This is the wage of your sin. This is the prophetic warning of your end if left in unrepentant unbelief. But he also died so that sinners who turn in faith might see that that cross which spoke in your condemnation now speaks in your defense. For Jesus is taking the punishment of your sin. He is dying for your death. To those who feel trapped in the consequence and inevitability of your own sin, there is a God who seeks your good when you cannot. And you might look at everything in your life and say, God's not good because I'm suffering here. God's not good because this is hard. But let me show you where you can find God good always. And that is in the cross. And if he is good to us here, Is he not seeking our good everywhere? You see, at the crowning moment of your guilt, we can, by grace, find it to be the crowning moment of God's favor. For Paul says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As another 19th century pastor said, who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Love for sinners. Love for you. Love for the people 
you hate. Love for those who needed a love that broke their will. Darkness, death, perversion of justice, desecration of life, slavery to passions, that is all our hands have wrought. That is what you bring to God on that cosmic day of court judgment. But for those who see that, it is a realization of those same acts that we see Jesus as our deliverance, that he, the innocent, dies in the place of us, the guilty. You see, it's right that we should look at this and realize that we are Barabbas. We are the guilty one exchanged for the innocent. And yet, let's remember that in this story, we are not Barabbas. We are not accidentally waiting and freed by some storyline unfamiliar to us. We are Pilate. We are the crowds. We are the one who are not neutral, who are not impassive, who are not accidental. We are the very cause of it. I'm fascinated by Pilate because I've been Pilate too many times. And what's interesting is that despite his best attempts and despite the Bible placing the majority of the weight on the Jews for their condemnation of Jesus, the church has long confessed, as we'll do in a few moments, that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Such opens the Apostles' Creed, the oldest creedal document of the church. For some reason, Pilate has been placed at the head of token rebellion. We confess being sinful in Adam. We see the Jews did it, but Pilate got the short end of the stick every time. And I always like to do a little thought experiment. Maybe it's because I grew up in the 90s and Chris Wright embodied me to think, what if cartoons got saved? Uh, they'd be singing praise in a whole new way. Yabba dabba do ya. Um, we, need, we need to be cleansed. Uh, but I began to think, what if Pilate got saved? This is a complete hypothetical. But what do we know? We know he was torn. We know he was conflicted. We know his wife was warned in a vision that he ought not do the very thing he's attempting to do. We know that he was in Jerusalem. He was in the area. He was around for the events surrounding the resurrection and the fallout of it. What happened? What would have happened if three days later, the report gets back to Pilate, who was already torn, and what if he said, as the Roman guard will say, certainly this man was the son of God. What if he realized this was the Christ? And for 2,000 years and all eternity... (laughs) He's the one who killed Jesus. My guess, I pray we get to ask him this in heaven, is that he wouldn't change a thing. He'd say, I did it. I crucified Jesus. Yet it was him who was crucified for me. I condemned the innocent and now my guilty soul is free. As one theologian said, only the man who is prepared to own his share of the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. 
We lost the trial, but Christ has won our salvation. Humble yourselves, therefore, and cry, crucify him. Cry, crucify him, not in fearful, fitful rage, but in humble, contrite brokenness. Cry, crucify him. As you know, the only thing that can atone for your sin is the spotless, sinless son of God suffering in your place. Cry, crucify him, not out of unredeemed wants, but out of the redeemed want of the gospel that yearns for relief from God through God, the heart of the atonement. Cry, crucify him, and believe it was for you. Be broken from the wants of unredeemed passions, and this morning, confess with us and sing with us with redeemed wants. The glory of Christ, crucified, dead, and buried. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have provided in Christ. We cannot understand our sin. We cannot understand your glory because of the limitations of our flesh and the true realities of your infinite nature. You are creator. We are creation. Even in our final redeemed state, we will not fully comprehend you and that is for our good. If we could exhaustively understand the glory of God, then we found a neat tourist trap. But you are far greater because you are the God who took on flesh to ransom for himself a people through the work of his son. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. And we pray today that as we respond, we respond not in the unredeemed desires of our flesh, but in the redeemed desires of the spirit. We pray this in your name.